Hope y'all love you here this morning, and I will ask you the same question that I asked the first service. Isn't it good to be able to come to church and not have to carry a, a, an umbrella with you? Man, I'm telling you, it's nice to see the sunshine out there on a beautiful day like today, and it's nice to be in here with all of you to be able to worship our Lord and Savior together, and I am glad that you are here. If you brought your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you did, would you please take them out and turn with me yet again to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Now, as you're making your way there, most of you know that I am a Georgian. By, I was born here and raised, matter of fact, just right up the road here in Gainesville. I'm, I'm from Gainesville, and, um, but I've not always lived here. Matter of fact, after I graduated high school, many of you know, I joined the service and I moved off and actually lived a couple of years overseas in Japan. I was, uh, one year I was in Diego Garcia during the first Persian Gulf War. I've lived overseas. I've lived all around in different places in Tennessee and in Texas. And, and uh, what I've learned, though, particularly as I was stationed overseas, surrounded by people who are not from the South and not from Georgia, is that they don't always understand me when I talk. <laughs> and, and it's not that they don't understand the words that are coming out of my mouth. It's just that they don't understand the meaning behind the words that I'm saying. Uh, for example, I, there's just phrases that we use. We call them idioms. There's expressions that we tend to use sometimes and, and use them in, in our language. And we just assume that everybody knows what they are. But, but I found out quite quickly, not everyone understood what I meant. For example, if I were to say to you, that she's having a hissy fit. If you're from here, you would probably recognize that there's some lady somewhere who's really angry. You would know that. But believe it or not, not everybody knows what that means. If I were to say to you that that fella holds a nickel to the buffalo squeals, you would know that somewhere there's a guy who doesn't like to spend money. One other one that I thought about, if I were to say they won't hit a lick at a snake, you might not have a clue what that means, but if you're from around here, you know that person's lazy and they're not going to do anything. That's what that, I thought I knew most all of those kind of phrases, and, and, and I even made up some, I think, in my life somewhere along the way. But when Caroline and I moved to Texas and I began my, uh, my master's program out there at Southwestern in Fort Worth, someone used this phrase with me, and I don't believe up until that point I had ever heard it before. He, he was talking about another individual, and he said, he's all hat, no cattle. And I thought, hold on, wait just a minute. Explain what, I don't know what that means. What does it mean to be all hat and no cattle? Well, that's a, really a Texas way of saying that, that someone is, is all talk, no action. There's somebody who's all show and no substance. There's another fellow walked out this morning and told me they're all sizzle and no steak. That idiom, all hat, no cattle, came to my mind this week as I was reflecting back on the passage that we studied last Sunday from the first 11 verses of Mark 11. And as I was preparing, as it moved us into what we're going to be looking at this morning. And the reason why the all hat, no cattle got to me is because if you can imagine, Jesus has just rode into town, into Jerusalem, on a donkey. And people have lined the roads and they've taken their coats off and laid it down in front of him. And they've gone and taken grief, leafy green uh, vegetation and put it there for him to stride in on, on top of that, that donkey as he makes his way into Jerusalem. People inside the city walls of Jerusalem have taken palm branches and gone out to meet him, waving them, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people were expecting great things from this Jesus, this Messiah, they were expecting that he would come and he would overthrow the Roman government, 
that was ruling over Israel, that he would set up his earthly kingdom, that he would restore Israel to the glory that she had once had during the reign of King David. But then we get to verse 11 of chapter 11, and it just says that Jesus went to the temple and he simply looked around at all the things going on there. And because the hour was late, well, he went out of Bethany, back out to Bethany with the twelve. My guess is that there were many in and around Jerusalem who would have said of Jesus, he's all hat and no cap. But I want you to know they couldn't have been any further from the truth when they made that statement. And the reason we know that is because of where we pick up in verse 12 and what we see Jesus doing the very next day. And so that's where I want us to start this morning, picking up there with verse 12, working our way down through verse 21. Listen to what happens on the next morning after Jesus has left and gone back to Bethany to rest that night. The Bible says this, Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany... He was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we do thank you for allowing us to be here together once again as your people. To be able to assemble together to sing praises to your name and to lift prayers to you. But also, Father, to open your word and to be able to read it, to be able to chew on it, to think about it, to study it. And then we ask humbly that you would take this word that you have authored and given to us to reveal our situation and to reveal yourself to us. Take it and then use it to transform us. Conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. Speak to us through your word this morning and give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us to know. We pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Now, since I started talking about idioms and expressions as a way of kind of communicating things, and, and, and what I decided to do was outline the passage this morning by, 
by using a couple of idioms, a couple of expressions that I hope will help us understand the flow of this text. And the first one that I have provided for you, I, I hope will explain a scene that has caused many, many people a lot of heartburn throughout the centuries uh, who have studied this passage in the New Testament. It involves this fig tree that Jesus places the curse upon. And so what I want to direct you to is the first point on your outline this morning. you find it there in your bulletin. The first point is, is simply a phrase that I've, I've come up with to explain the fig tree. And the fig tree was simply this. It was all leaves and no fruit. It was all leaves and no fruit. Mark tells us that on the morning after Jesus had gone into Jerusalem, on the Sunday that he had come in for his triumphal entry, he looks and goes into the temple, looks around, sees what's going on, goes back to Bethany. The next day he gets up and he leaves to go back to Jerusalem with his disciples again. And it says that he's hungry. Perhaps he didn't have time to eat breakfast that morning. He spent time in prayer. Whatever the reason, as he's walking down the road, he sees a fig tree and he thinks to himself, hey, the tree is all leafed out, has leaves everywhere. Maybe I'll go and find some figs on that tree. And so he goes and he looks, but there are no figs on the tree. Now, the issue with the scene that causes everybody so much heartburn is what he says, what Mark tells us at the end of verse 13. Mark says, for it was not the season for figs. Now, do you see where the heartburn comes now? You see why there's trouble here. Jesus is going to look for figs on a fig tree when it says very clearly it was not the season for figs. That just doesn't seem to make sense, really, on the, on the surface, does it? You add to that the complexity of what happens next. You see, Jesus not only went and looked for figs during a time when there were no figs or when it was not the season for figs, but then he places a curse on that tree for not having figs on it. And so the question then becomes, well, since figs weren't in season, why did Jesus curse the tree? Could the, could the tree help the fact that it didn't have fruit? I mean, doesn't this make Jesus come off as capricious and, and sort of acting like a spoiled child who doesn't get his way? Many have even written such about him. If you've never studied this passage, I would encourage you to do so. I would encourage you to take a longer look at it. You can find a lot of good resources even online that will help you. I would discourage you sometimes from just believing everything that you read online as I would discourage you from believing everything that you read anywhere about anything. But what I would say to you is there's a lot of ink that has been spilled over this issue. And to, make, to add like another twist to it, J.R. Edwards has noted that the cursing of the fig tree is the only miracle of destruction in the canonical Gospels. That has caused many people to just stop and to look at this scene and go, what in the world? How do we understand it? What does it mean? Now, I will say this. Many have come to Jesus' defense by discussing all the different ways that a fig tree behaves. And I want to just say to you right up front, I'm not a horticulturist. Nor am I an arborist. I don't, I don't understand trees. I don't really understand a lot about... I, I know what a Christmas tree is because it has lights on it. Past that, I'm not real smart as it pertains to a lot of those things. So I have to, I have to rely on others who have written and, and, and who understand certain things. And, and what some of those would say would be this. A fig tree by nature typically produces figs, particularly in the Middle East, in the fall. However... In the spring, in the early summer, you can have a fruit produced on a fig tree that actually is produced from the previous year's growth. And those little bulbs that come out are green. They're called pagum. 
And they're not very sweet. They're not very good to eat, but they are edible. And so many would say that when Jesus was going to look at this tree that was in full leaf, which interestingly enough, if a tree is in leaf, a fig tree, most would say there should be fruit on that tree of some kind. That when Jesus went there to look, not even any pagum was there for him to take off and to eat. Now, I would just say to you, there's a lot of explanations and I would encourage you to look into those. I don't, like a, I'm not a horticulturist, but here's what I am. I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do believe that he is the perfect, sinless son of God. I do believe by his very hands, he created everything that we see, everything seen and unseen, every tree, everything that we know that exists on this earth, I believe, was created by God and by the son who, who he used to do that. Furthermore, I believe that the very scriptures that we have in front of us are authored by the Holy Spirit and therefore we can depend upon them and that they are inerrant in the way that God described them and placed them in our hands. And so we can believe what we have in front of us to be absolutely true. So I am of the mind that if Jesus saw a fig tree that was full of leaves and that if he was hungry and he went to it expecting to be able to find something to eat but did not find it there, then there had to have been the real possibility that fruit would have been on that tree that he did not find. And that really is the point. Jesus went to a tree expecting to find fruit, but he didn't find any fruit. We might say this, it was all show and no substance. It was all leaves and no fruit. It was all hat and no cattle. And as a result, Mark tells us that Jesus places a curse on that tree in verse 14. He says it this way. He says, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. Now, brothers and sisters, if we just walked away from this text right here, it'd be a real head scratcher. We'd have a hard time trying to understand exactly how, what are we supposed to do with this? How do we, how do we apply that? How do, what, what does it mean for us? But I want you to know something. Nothing happens by happenstance with Jesus. There's nothing that just happens by chance with him. And I believe that, that Jesus was orchestrating events all the while an attempt to try to teach his disciples something. As a matter of fact, many scholars look at this passage and say what Jesus was doing was enacting in a physical way a parable for them. A parable that they could understand. A parable that they could get their minds around. Something that would be visible so that they could really drive down deep into their heart the truth that Jesus was communicating. You see, throughout the Old Testament, Israel was often referred to as some sort of a, of a growing bush or a tree. They were often referred to, Israel was referred to as a grapevine. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as an olive tree. And you will also find many places in the Old Testament where Israel is referred to as a fig tree. I'll give you just a few of these examples. You can look at those up for yourself later. Jeremiah 8, verse 13 Jeremiah 29, verse 17. Joel, chapter 1, verse 7. Micah, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. But one of the clearest examples that we find where, where, where Israel is compared to a fig tree is, comes from Hosea, chapter 9, verse 10. Let me read it for you. God says this through his prophet. I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness, and I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. Isn't that interesting? God, when he refers to Israel, in many cases referring to them as a fig tree, as a grapevine, as an olive tree. 
So if we recognize that the fig tree is the physical representation of the nation of Israel, then, then when Jesus comes to this particular fig tree on his way to Jerusalem, he is going to enact a parable out in front of his disciples in order to teach them something very important. And what he wants them to understand is that God's chosen people, the people upon whom he had shown his covenant love and given them his promises, well, they were going to experience God's wrath and God's judgment because they had rejected God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he had sent to them. How do I know that? How, do I, how can I make that statement? Well, we don't even read to the finality of what took place with that fig tree until down in verse 20. Jesus made the statement there in verse 14, but we see the finality of it down in verse 20 when we find that on the very next day, as they are making their way once again back to Jerusalem, they pass by that very same fig tree and they noticed that it had dried up from its roots. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But the way that we really begin to understand how God was using this and how Jesus intended for this understanding to, to be melted down into the hearts of his disciples is about what takes place in the middle. From verses 15 to verse 19, we get another picture and we get the picture of Jesus in the temple. And that's what I want to draw your attention to next. And I've got another phrase that I want to use for you. So the second point on your outline this morning is this. We're going to look at the temple. And the temple was this. It was all noise and no true worship. It was all noise and no true worship. See, Jesus cursed that fig tree on the way down into Jerusalem. And then Mark tells us that once he got into Jerusalem, he made a beeline straight for the temple. And when he got to the temple, he noticed what he does. He drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and, and he overturned the seats of those who sold doves and he would not allow anyone to carry their wares through the temple. That means the temple was even being used as a shortcut for people. And he says, you're not going to just come through here and profane this place. If you've if you've ever wanted a picture of what righteous indignation looks like, you have it right here in front of you in Mark chapter 11. But before we get to why Jesus responded the way he did, we must come to an understanding of what actually was going on inside those temple walls. To begin with, we need to understand that it was the time of Passover and the celebration of Passover. And that's why Jesus and the well and all the rest are there in Jerusalem. And here's what's interesting. The place would have been crowded. As a matter of fact, first century Historian Josephus writes about what was taking place in Jerusalem in the year A.D. 65, some probably maybe 30, 35 years before Jesus is there, after Jesus is here in Mark 11. And while he's there, Josephus writes that in the year A.D. 65 in Jerusalem, there were 255,000 lambs that were sacrificed because of Passover. And because of that large number, he estimates that within the city of Jerusalem at Passover in AD 65, that there were 2.7 million people who had gathered there. It's just mind-boggling when you think about it. Now, we don't know how many were in Jerusalem here in Mark chapter 11, but I think it's safe for us to assume that there were a lot of people in the walls of Jerusalem. A lot of people packed into the temple itself. And these people had come from great distances, from all over Israel. They had come to celebrate the Passover. And when they came, they came there to offer sacrifices and to pay the temple tax, which was, which was demanded over every male in the nation of Israel. 
But for those who came from long distances, it really wasn't practical for them to carry their own animal. It wasn't practical for them to, to, to carry their own sacrifice. So, so there were people who had set up there inside the city to, to be able to sell to them appropriate sacrifices. Some would buy sheep, some might buy cattle. Others who were very poor would buy doves for their sacrifices. And so there would be those there who would, who would uh, let, allow them to purchase those animals for sacrifice. Not only that, but in order to pay the temple tax, you had to pay the temple tax with the right coinage. It had to be minted from the finest of silver. And the common coins that were being used back and forth were not coins that had that silver in it. And so guess what? There were, there were money changers there. They would take the coins that were being used by the common people. And guess what? We will be happy to provide you with the appropriate coin that is made of the appropriate silver. And for a small nominal fee, we'll make that exchange for you. And that's how they earned their living. This was something that was taking place and it had been taking place for many, many years and it was a service that was being provided in many respects, but here's the point. That service, the, all of that commerce had moved from what had originally been outside the walls of the city to inside the walls of the city and now was even had encroached inside the walls of the temple itself, inside what is known as the court of the Gentiles. You see, the temple was laid out into three different major, four different major sections. You had the court of the Gentiles, you had the court of the women, then you had, the, you had the, the inner court where the Jewish men could go, and then you had the Holy of Holies. Well, the, the court of the Gentiles was the outer court, and it was something that had been established by God as a way for Gentiles, folks looks like you and I, to have been able to come to Jerusalem, to go into the temple, to be able to worship the one and true God. God had always intended for the Gentiles to be able to come to his temple, to be able to worship him. Listen to what he writes in Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. He says, even the Gentiles I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. God had always intended for his chosen people to be a testimony to all nations that their God was the one true God. And the temple had been established and set up the way that it was so that there, even there, Gentiles like you and I could go and truly engage in worship. But think about it. Imagine us making that trek and getting there and the whole time that we're going in the, the court of the Gentiles to pray, we're having to be cognizant of where we're stepping because of everything that was being left over by all the animals that were being sold there, were being knocked into by those same animals. The bleeding and the bellowing of all the sheep would have drowned out our own prayers, not to mention all of the people who would have been hollering prices back and forth trying to get our attention to come by. And Jesus sees that and it just infuriates him. R.C. Sproul says this, he says, the court of the Gentiles had been transformed from a place of worship and prayer to a place of commerce. Consequently, when Jesus came into this house of God, he saw that it was being used for something other than that for which it had been consecrated. And he begins driving out the animals. He begins overturning the money changers' tables. Can you imagine all the coins running everywhere and everybody's trying to go, wait a minute, let me get mine. It's just a chaotic scene that, and a surprising scene that takes place here. Notice Jesus makes these two statements. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? And embedded in that question is the passage that I quoted from you earlier. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. 
Jesus was angry that this sacred space that was designed to be a house of prayer had been turned into a noisy bazaar in a marketplace. Furthermore, we see in verse 17 that we alerted to just how God was being dishonored. He says that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves, Jesus says. This quote actually comes from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And then in that particular passage, you'll find that the prophet Jeremiah actually goes and preaches to the people in the temple in his day the very same message that Jesus was preaching. And that is you've turned this place into something other than what God intended for it to be. What made Jesus angry was that in all their buying and selling, they were forgetting the true worship of God. In fact, that second point on your outline that I've given you this morning really states it very clearly. There was a lot of noisy activity going on inside the temple, but there was not accompanying with that any true and genuine worship of God. Just as with a fig tree, they were all leaves and no fruit. They were all hat and no cattle. This is a pattern we actually see repeated over and over again, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New Listen to what the Lord said to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 31. He says this, he says, So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. The Lord says this in Isaiah 29, verse 13. He says, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. That's what it means to be all leaves and no fruit, people. That's what it means to be all sizzle and no steak. That's what it means to be all all show and no substance. That's exactly what Jesus confronts the Pharisees and the scribes with. Right here we're in Mark 11, but if we turned and started reading in Matthew and the parallel passage of this, we'd see that in short order Jesus addresses the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verses 25 and following. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. He says, For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you are outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Such words are incredibly descriptive and help us understand, particularly in light of the fact that after Jesus turns over all these tables and gets rid of all these animals, it was those same scribes, it was those same religious leaders that came out wanting to know what he was doing and who did he think he was. Mark tells us that They sought how they might destroy Jesus for they feared him because of all the people were astonished at his teaching. And ultimately we know that they did kill Jesus. But because he was the Messiah, because he is the son of God, there was no way that they could destroy him. In fact, the scriptures tell us that it was by the very means of his death that he brought life to all who will believe upon him and trust in him. So we have the scene of the tree. We have the scene of the temple. Notice the last two verses. Jesus leaves town that night. Jerusalem goes back to Bethany once again. The next morning, they make their way back to Jerusalem. And as we read, they looked at the tree that has now withered up 
from its roots. It's dead. I mean, it's the, the leaves have turned brown. A true miracle has taken place, but a miracle in the opposite direction of the way that we normally think of things. A tree that was perfectly healthy and in full leaf 24 hours ago is now dried up. And Peter remembers it and says, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. And I want you to know that leads to the third thing that I want you to see from our text this morning because here we have the judgment. And the judgment is simply this, withered and destroyed. Withered and destroyed. The prophet Hosea writes about this concerning what would happen to the nation of Israel. Hosea chapter 2 verse 12, God says, I will lay waste her vine." her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest. The fig tree is now withered, but I want you to know that's not the only judgment that takes place here. That's the one that's the most visible for them. But what we will find out is later on that day, and it'll take us about another chapter and a half of Mark to get there. But later on that very day, when Jesus had been in the temple and doing all the things and seeing and teaching and doing all the stuff he did, he went on his way back out. And in, and in Mark chapter 13, verse 1, we read, Then as he went out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. In fact, what we know from history is that some 40 years later or so, in AD 70, the Roman Emperor Titus led his Roman army into Jerusalem and crushed the Jewish revolt that was taking place. And as a result of that, Josephus, that same historian I quoted earlier, tells us that 1.1 million people were killed not only that, but the temple was completely ransacked and completely destroyed. Everything that Jesus had said would happen took place. Not one stone was left on top of another. So in this passage, what we see, what we come face to face with is the fact that our Lord's judgment is displayed for us in the withering of a fig tree that is all leaves and no fruit, and it is in the destruction of the temple that is all noise and no true worship. What are we, what are we in 2018, people sitting in Buford, Georgia, what are we supposed to make of that? How does that apply to our lives? How are we supposed to, what are we supposed to do with that information? Well, I believe that there's a warning here for us. And that warning is what I've been giving to you this morning in my sermon in a sentence. And my sermon in a sentence is simply this. If we claim that we have been redeemed by God's grace, but do not produce fruit or offer genuine worship, brothers and sisters, we are in danger of God's judgment. You see, this is not a passage that you and I can just safely assume has no implication and application to us. In fact, we dare not make the mistake of thinking that what happened to the fig tree and what happened to the temple and what happened to Israel... That, that it's not something that applies directly to us. No, because of what happened to them, you and I have to recognize that God is very serious about bearing fruit and he's very serious about being worshipped. May I remind you of what Jesus states in his Sermon on the Mount? Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. Jesus says, you will know them by their fruits. 
Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, Jesus says, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Consequently, he says, you will know their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Brothers and sisters, if you and I are Christians... We are supposed to be fruit-producing people. That's how God designed us. That's why He redeemed us. John 15, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Later, down in verse 16 of chapter 15 of John, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. The Apostle Paul is helpful because he helps us understand a little bit of what that fruit looks like. Many of you are going to know this verse by heart, a couple of these verses, but let me tell them to you. Here's what the fruit is in the life of a Christian. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you want to know what ought to be budding out of your life on a regular basis if you have been redeemed by God's grace? All of those things. That should be being produced in your life. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. The Apostle Peter agrees with the Apostle Paul. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and following, he says, But know also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things, Peter says, are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says this, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Brothers and sisters, there is no conceivable circumstance or situation which allows you, if you have truly been redeemed by God's grace, to be a person who is all leaves and no fruit, all hat and no cattle. There is no conceivable circumstance or situation which allows you, if you have been redeemed by God's grace, to be a person who is all noise and no true worship. The Apostle Paul says this very clearly in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable act of service or your reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20 tells us this. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify or give praise and worship to God in your body and in the spirit, which are God's. Brothers and sisters, we dare not be all noise and no true worship. We dare not be all leaves and no fruit. We dare not be all hat and no cattle. And you want to know why? Because Jesus Christ has come to bear the curse for us. Here's the point. Apart from Christ, 
you and I would stand just like that fig tree. Cursed, withered from the roots up. We would be just like that temple. Everything about our lives would be turned upside down and we would face God's judgment forever. But because of Jesus, Jesus who came and suffered the curse for us, you and I can experience life and freedom. But because he has bought us, our life is to bear fruit and our life is to be one of worship. My prayer is this morning, if you have never truly repented of your sins, you've never truly been saved by God's grace and by his mercy, that today will be the day. My prayer is that you will come to an understanding that apart from Christ, you remain under the curse of God's judgment, but that Jesus has come to save you and he's come to give you life if you will repent of your sins and trust in him. If that is your testimony, then my prayer this morning is for you to understand this. Are you being fruitful? Is your life producing fruit? When God examines your life, will he find fruit? Maybe you should ask it this way. Does the way that I live my life truly bring him glory and honor? Am I living a life of worship to the one who loved me and gave himself for me? If we ask ourselves these questions, and if we're drive to that self-examination, then I believe we will truly get to the point that this passage is attempting to make. Because, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.